And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hey friends, it's Jane Chow Pomeroy. We've got a great episode for you today as we focus on global mission and why it was so important to early covenanters. Kathy and I had a chance to sit down with Kurt Peterson, who served as executive minister of World Mission, which is now a part of Serve Globally for 12 years, starting in 2003. Previous to that role, Kurt served as pastor of Montecito Covenant Church in Santa Barbara, California for 23 years, which means that Kurt has been an ordained covenant pastor for 45 years. We're so grateful Kurt was willing to step out of retirement to serve our denomination. And in the interview, you'll hear why he's uniquely fit to serve as interim today. But before we get to talking about global mission, Kathy had a chance to sit down with Jim Sakira, pastor of Cascade View Covenant Church in Vancouver, Washington, on his experience and journey to becoming covenant. So my first question for you is, how did you find yourself in the Covenant Church? Wow. I, I got to go back a long, long, long ways. So um, in, I graduated in 1976. Actually, when I was in high school, my junior year, went to Young Life Camp called Malibu in Canada, um, became a follower of Jesus there. And my counselor said, okay, now, now we're going to go church shopping, which was surprising because my background was... Um, my dad's side was kind of Mormon. Mom was part of the congregational church. And so we kind of went, I mean, we were Christmas and Easter people, right? And so then um, my young life leader took me to one church and it was a big church and really nice. And then he took me to another church, which was called Trinity Covenant Church. Um, <laughs> it was a smaller church in Salem, Oregon. And so um, that first Sunday, um, going into my senior year, I was at Trinity Covenant Church and they probably had, I don't know, maybe 140 people, 150 people. But, um, you know, one thing for sure, they were all white. <laughs> they were all white. But, um, but that, 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 first, that first Sunday, Kathy, um, probably the biggest impact was there was a couple, um, Stan and Ruth home. Hmm. And they said, um, come, come have lunch with us. We want you to be our guest at lunch. That, that was my very first Sunday. And so they invited me and, and we had lunch. We had a wonderful conversation. It wasn't, it was just um, getting to know me, getting to know me. And so that, that was kind of my first, you know, initiation into Trinity Covenant Church. Um, the following Sunday, there was a, um, a long time woman, long time we, in Hawaiian, we call them El, uh, Kapunas, but a long time elder. Her name was Ion Larson. And she came up to me, tiny little lady, comes up to me and, and says, oh, um, do you like going to the movies? I'm like thinking, well, we're kind of too, you know, our age difference to date <laughs> might not work out. But she says, here's, here, I, I want to give you two tickets to a movie. It's called The Hiding Place. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what it was about, but she says, I think you might like it. It's a, you know, and she asked me if I knew about it. I said, no, I never heard about it. She says it was about a lady named Corey Ten Boom. She handed me two tickets to go see a movie. And then a few minutes later, she comes up to me. She says, I bet you have more than just one friend. And she, she ended up giving me, I think, four or five tickets. And so, um, yeah, so we, my friends and I, we went to see um, 
the the hiding place because of this little woman named Ion Larson was bold <laughs> enough to come up and you know to just invite me you know and so that's you know that was my initiation if you will um, the hospitality the kindness that I experienced at, at Trinity Covenant Church and then goes without saying I think you know a lot of my calling is because of my pastor my first pastor was Alton Peterson um, actually the late Alton Peterson mm. and I remember um, we were we had after the youth group we were. Um, being rambunctious, if you will, we were we were, <laughs> we were doing uh, messy some messy things. But I remember we were filling up water balloons and we had shaving cream and uh, you know opened up Oreo cookies that were sticking all over people. But I remember standing at the sink and Alton Peterson reading scripture, talking to me that I'm going to be judged, and I thought it was the funniest thing. I mean, he was <laughs> laughing too, but he was reading the scripture about you know what's going to happen and judgment day comes, and you know I. That that was my home, and there was just a lot of space and a lot of grace. And so that was my initiation. That was back um, September. No, actually, it would have been um, June. I became a Christian in June of June fifteenth. So it was back in June of nineteen seventy five that I started going to the Covenant Church. And then, can you tell me, like, how are you now an ordained Covenant pastor? How am I? Yeah, like, well, tell me more of that part of the journey. Oh, that journey. You know, um, oh. It's a great, it's a great question. You know, just a lot of people, I think a lot of situations, but I think um, I had a heart at the time to be a youth pastor. Mm -hmm. um, and so the guy that mentored me, uh, another great, great pastor friend of mine, his, his name is Dennis Poole. He's retired. But um, when he was at Trinity, he was an associate pastor and mentored me. Um, he was also involved with another outreach ministry. But then I, I noticed that um, personalities did not work out. So Dennis ended up going to seminary. Dennis ended up finishing up some, some work that he needed at North Park and got ordained. And so I thought because of Dennis's experience, being able to, you know, if, if anything were to happen in youth ministry, you know, he, he had his MDiv. And so part of the journey for me was, you know, I wanted to get my MDiv. I never, I never thought I'd be a lead pastor. I always thought I was going to be a youth pastor because I just love youth ministry, mm -hmm. but just did, you know, got my MDiv as an, um, as just the, um, as a backup, as kind of like, just better try it. And then I, you know, with Alton Peterson and people like that, just encouraged me along the way. Um, I remember sitting with um, Brad, Brad um, Widman, because he was a youth pastor in our area. And Brad Widman looked at me and he just goes, I could see you being a lead pastor. And this was at a youth pastor breakfast. And I kind of gave him, you know, the, the sign of the cross, you know, crossing your fingers. And, and I'm like, don't say that, you know, curse should be you. And, you know, a few years later, his words ended up being prophetic. And I just think it was, um, you know, I, I just think it was opportunities. You know, I'll, I'll share this too. When I was a youth pastor, Art Greco, who I, who I uh, served with at Tiger Covenant Church, I remember him asking me, are you going to go to the pastor's retreat? Um, and I said, mm, I'm not sure. I'm just a youth pastor. And then he just chewed me out. He says, you are not a youth pastor. You are a pastor. And if um, anybody calls you a youth pastor, you don't listen to them. You are a pastor. And um, I think that really spoke into my life because um, I, went, I would start going to these youth, um, local youth or local pastor re retreats and things like that, really with an attitude, you know what, I am a pastor. And um and the pastors in our area, in the Salem, I was in the Salem, Eugene area, Portland area, accepted me. I mean, I was I was not seen necessarily as a youth pastor. I was seen as an equal with them. And I was, and I remember, um, you know, someone asking me a question during a, you know, we were having a discussion at a table and he asked a question and I thought he was asking somebody else. And he looked at me, you're asking me, <laughs> uh, and his name was Howard Johnson. He was, you know, I mean, the late Howard Johnson, another pastor, but he, 
you know, when he showed interest in what I had to say among the other pastors, I, you know, th- so that's really the steps is just, um, I think, being accepted uh, by the by our local pastors. And that, you know, that allowed me a doorway in and, and to nurture and to grow and build in the relationships to be where I am. And I think a lot of the influences of those people um, affect how I am. I mean, you know, part of my journey, as far as my racial reconciliation has a lot to do with Pastor Henry Greenwich. I mean, he was my mentor. He, you know, when we did not have a Kappa, um, mm-hmm. Pastor Henry invited me to be part of the AAMA. And I wasn't invited to the meetings, but I was invited <laughs> to the meals. And so, you know, when I come to Midwinter, although I didn't have my own, um, uh, what is it, my own fraternal group or whatever, I, you know, or the ministerium, right? You know, the, the various ministeriums. I was, uh, you know, I, I was part of, and I was accepted as a guest of the AAMA. And so, you know, it's just those relationships, and and, and you know, the covenant's heart to, you know, the welcoming, right? So I'm welcomed at the table of um, Trinity Covenant Church with a meal. I'm welcomed into the uh, AAMA, this ministerium association. And then also another big step, I think, for me, and really kind of where we got connected as far as the indigenous discussion, and thank you so much for all you've done and just helping us advance the story, was um, was my invitation to the table by um, Reverend Debbie Blue. I mean, mm-hmm. she was the one that said, you know, please join us at the table and said, you know, your story as a Native Hawaiian is very important. And so I think along the way, people have just been very gracious um, in opening the door and allowing me to be part of the table and, and sitting at the table. I love that. One of my follow up questions was going to be, why do you stay? Like, because, you know, the church isn't perfect, but I feel like I'm hearing your answer unless there's other ways you would say it. But the continual welcome is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's it's part of the family, right? In Hawaii, we call it ohana. And, and I think sometimes in the Western culture, people just say, oh, it's family, we're family. But in, in, in indigenous cultures, there's something different. You know, when we say ohana, whether it's ohana or, you know, Native Americans have, you know, their language for family. Um, it's totally different. There's there's this deeper commitment. But, um, and, and really, to be honest with you, I think the thing that resonated with me is, um, to me, the you know, the covenant's been very Hawaiian. I mean, it's about hospitality. It's about generosity. It's about sharing, you know, good meals. I haven't had lutefisk yet, so I'm not sure about the lutefisk. <laughs> I'm willing to try lutefisk if I can have it with poi. But you know, just the I think the heart of the you know the heart of the denomination is just um, uh, just the generosity, generosity. Mm-hmm. But I will let me if I could share this story. You know, we talked about what you know that when did I learn of, of the difference, right? Of the difference of of the of the covenant, right? So. Um, Trinity Covenant Church. I loved it. I thought, oh, this is what the covenant's all about. It's like Trinity Covenant Church. You know, everybody's like this. And then um, we went on a youth retreat. Dennis Poole, I was Dennis Poole's associate uh, counselor. Um, in fact, Mark Novak, he was he was in charge of the program at the time. And, and we had just this wonderful time. And then, um, you know, we had clogging and square dancing and all these things. So then we were we were we had we drove up to Portland and the youth pastors were kind of having a debrief to talk about the the um, the retreat that weekend retreat and one of the pastors or one of the youth pastors they everybody was kind of teasing him but I wasn't sure about it and so they said hey someone says hey I heard you got called before your elder board and he, he was like yeah 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 and they're like and they started laughing <laughs> and they go tell us about it and he goes um, I was called before the elder board because there was dancing at camp. Oh. And I, and so we're like, what? And he says, yeah, um, they, they said, we don't dance in this church. Wow. 
And then he said, but it was clogging. It was square dancing. And, and their response to him was, still, in this church, we don't dance. Wow. And that was kind of the moment when I realized, okay, the covenant <laughs> is bigger than Trinity Covenant Church. And there are covenant churches that don't dance, you know, or don't square dance or don't clog. And so I think, you know, slowly but surely, you know, there was that um, you know, realization and you know that that wow, this is this is a bigger, you know, denomination. This is a bigger ohana than just what I grew up with. But again, that theme of generosity, hospitality, you know, being welcome to the um, to the potluck, to welcome to the table. Has always been, you know, what's kept me here, and 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 hopefully, you know, I mean, I want to be able to pass along that legacy. I want to be part of that legacy. So even though I'm a, you know, I, I come from the Swedish, the brown part, the the part of Sweden that's a little closer to the equator. You know, I, I, I'm Swedish. I'm Swedish. There, you know, because you know, being part of the discussion of racial righteousness, racial reconciliation, people ask or people say. I don't have a history because I'm able to share my, you know, my history as far as being native. And so, you know, a lot of people in the covenant say, I don't have a history or people, you know, with a Swedish background. And so a few years ago, um, was it Detroit that they had an annual meeting? And so I'm flying from Portland to Detroit. I'm sitting beside this woman. Um, she definitely had a, 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 an accent. So I said, oh, you know, I, I noticed you have an accent. Where are you from? And so she says, um, oh, I'm from Sweden. Her name was Ingrid. And, and she was in her 70s. And I said, oh, your, your, your accent sounds like you're from New York. And so she, we kind of chuckled and laughed. And then she said, what, what do you do? Where are you, where are you headed? And I said, oh, I'm going to Detroit. And, and so I always avoid um, telling people what I do, right? Because then sometimes it just gets really lonely. My friend that's an introvert, he, consider, he considers when you tell somebody you're a pastor, it's like a superpower because nobody will talk to you. <laughs> so, so Ingrid just kept, oh, yeah. And the other thing about Ingrid, she told me about her life. She had, she moved to America. She, wa- she had three things in her mind. Um, she wanted to be a cowboy. She wanted to be a flight attendant. And that she wanted to see, you know, all, you know, live in the United States. That was her goal. So she moved when she was like 17 years old. So we're talking and finally she gets out why I'm going. I said, I'm going to a church conference. And she says to me, oh, I hate the church. I hate Christians. Right. And so this lady's the one that's sitting beside me. And so I'm like, okay, well said. (laughs) So it's kind of like quiet. And she didn't kind of let it sit there. You know, so she chatted a little bit. And I said, you know, Ingrid, you you say you're from you're, you're from Sweden. And she says, yeah. I said, can I share something with you? And she goes, okay. And I said, you know, when I be, when I started going to church, there was a movie I watched, and it was called The Oxen. And this movie was called The Oxen because it gives a little bit of history of the covenant, but also the Swedish people. Her eyes lit up. She goes, that movie? I know the movie you're talking about. I live right down the road from that place. No. And so I said, can I, can I just share with you a little bit about what I'm part of? And she said, okay. And so I, I, you know, I shared with her. I said, you know, I'm part of this group of people. They're called, they, they've come, they're called, um, Mission friends, and they started in the covenant. And there's a story about one of these, one of the women, um, or actually there's three women who were in a Bible study, and they um, they decided, you know, we can't just talk about God. We're going to do something. And so they started going into town because children were being sold because the economy was so bad. They would like purchase these children, but they would they were adopting them. And so she was taking care of them. And 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 someone, you know, her one the husband of one of the women literally like chained her to this to this. Um, you know, this pot belly stove or whatever, and she broke away, but they kept, you know, purchasing kids and giving them a home. And so, 
So I told her a little bit about that. And I said, you know, the woman, this, the, the, the grand, great grandson of this woman, her son's name is on one of the buildings of our, of our seminary. Mm. And so I said, you know, and so these women, and so what happened, and, and I talked about the story that Jim Sunholm shares about Morival. So I said, this place Morival, but, but this building, um, you know, this building, it was, it was a, a place for orphans. It was a hospital. And it was, a, it was like a place, it was like a care center. It was like a, a place for people that are growing old and getting older and taking care of them. And so, and so I said, I'm, so I'm part of this thing called the Evangelical Covenant Church. And, and so this was their heart was just to love on people and take care of people. And I said, Ingrid, you know what? Your people, your Swedish people invited me to your church and asked, you know, and, and they took care of me and they taught me about the love of Jesus and, and how we can care for Jesus and take care of or, or how Jesus cares for people. I said, your people, it's your people <laughs> taught me and loved me and brought me in and, and let me be part of your Ohana, your family. And I could just see the smile come across her face. And so I said, thank you, Ingrid. Thank you so much. Um, and she just, I could just see her kind of sitting up, you know, and, and our conversation, you know, continued on. And at one point she was sharing about her friend that was, you know, had cancer. And I said, I don't want to step over any boundaries, but can we pray for your friend? And she like grabbed my hand. I mean, she grabbed my wow. hand and goes, let's pray right here. So we're praying that we got off the plane and we, you know, we gave each other a hug and said goodbye, but I was in like the luggage area. No, it was in the transport area going from the, the, where the plane was to where the luggage was. And she, she must've saw me. I didn't see her, but I'm like looking around kind of be not never being there before. I'm looking around kind of confused and just, where am I? All of a sudden I hear Swedish voice shouting over the crowd, Jim, Jim, over here. The door is open to the, the whatever, the, the shuttle. She's standing on the chair, hanging on, and she's waving to me. She's <laughs> waving, Jim, over here, over here. You know? And so I, um, I share that because, you know what, for people that say, I don't have a history in the covenant, mm. um, I'm part of your legacy. Mm. I, I am part of your story. And I think as um um, uh, the late Jim Sunholm says, um, I, my stream has been, is part of your stream. You've allowed me to be part of your stream. And so, um, that's, that's the covenant I know. Um, that's the covenant I love. Um, and it's, you know, it's the legacy. It's the people that have gone before me. It's the people I've journeyed with and, and hopefully I can leave um, something behind. In Hawaiians, Hawaii, we say, um, we are the descendants of our ancestors and the ancestors of our descendants. And so, um, I have received well from the covenant and hopefully um, I'm able to pass that along. On the podcast, we're trying to peel back various layers of what it means to be covenant. And one of those specific conversations is um, what it means when we call ourselves mission friends. And in our last episode, we talked with Ephraim Smith about the covenant as a missional movement. But today we're here with Kurt Peterson, who is interim executive minister of Serve Globally and used to be um, executive minister of Serve Globally. Um, and we're talking about our roots and global mission. So Kurt, can you help us understand why were global missions so integral to early covenanters? Uh, it's my privilege to share with you. And um, as I think and read the history of the covenant, I see us as a covenant being born of a, a spiritual revival. 
Uh, and those who came to new life in Christ, their hearts beat for mission. Um, they, so they were called mission friends. Uh, the mission and mission friends wasn't exclusively foreign mission. It, it was more inclusive than that, but it certainly uh, was part of the revivalist uh, movement to be concerned about world uh, missionary interests. And, and we also inherited this kind of zeal for mission from our mother church in Sweden, because it had been born there as well. Um, people who came alive in Christ read the Bible. And when they read the Bible, uh, they read Acts chapter one, it said the Holy Spirit, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They read in Matthew about the commission that Jesus gave, that you are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So the, this was the impact was a spiritual impact. It was a biblical impact on them. But also they were in a context where the Reformation Church, the Lutheran Church, really wasn't involved in world mission. They weren't a global effort. They didn't engage in that global effort. But the revival out of which we were born was the Pietist revival, which was deeply concerned about mission around the world. Uh, Zinzendorf, Franke, and Halle, Halle um, the Moravian Pietists, they all contributed to a, a global mission initiative of the covenant. Um, even theologian Peter Paul Waldenstrom it is said that he wanted to go as a missionary as early as 1862. Um, and um, that, that impact uh, continued for us as a church. Uh, Franca said that Christians should live intentionally for God's glory and neighbor's good. And where do we do that? We do that here and we do that there. We do it around the world. So there's an interesting quote from David Nival. Uh, that speaks to this, and he was at the Chicago World Parliament of Religions in 1893. I remember, we were formed in 1885, so just eight years later. And he said, the covenant is not a church organization in the ordinary sense, but a mission society having churches as its members. And these churches have consolidated because of the missionary spirit, which led them to missionary enterprises too large for any single church to undertake. The identity of the covenant was mission, and we do mission together because we can't do that alone as a single church. And so we shared in that mission. We can't discount that there were influences by evangelists in the United States, Dwight L. Moody, uh, this, a Swedish um, evangelist and mission leader, Frederick Franson, had a great impact on evangelization around the world. And they impacted uh, members of covenant churches as well in those early days. So the heart for the gospel was born and it was looking for a place, a place to be expressed. And so that continued to be central to who we are and, and what we've done over these years. So Kurt, would you say that 
I, I don't think I've heard people express it the way you just said. Would you say that we formed as a denomination one like explicitly so that we could do mission together? I would say that's very much the case as long as we include a local mission setting mm -hmm. along with a global mission. Okay. We saw our neighbor as the one next door. We saw the neighbor as the one further down the community. And we did things, as you've probably heard already or will hear, about the home of mercy that began in the, be in the earliest days of the covenant. Uh, there was a children's home. There were seafarers missions. There was a way in which we engaged, not in an intellectual understanding of the Bible, but as a Bible to be lived. And to be lived was to be in mission. You can't read the book of Acts without seeing us as called to go from here to there and out into all the into all the earth. And, and that, that was our call. And it was part of the pietist um, heartbeat, as I said. What are we saying when we say that everybody's our neighbor? Well, we are called in scripture to love our neighbor as ourselves. So then the, the neighbor is someone outside ourselves and anyone. And it is not simply another culture, but it is a person in need. The context uh, of, of talking about neighbor, who is my neighbor? It was about the context of caring for someone in deep need who had been brutalized alongside the road. And so it has taken the shape of the marginalized, the uh, impoverished, uh, the, the person who is powerless is part of the defining identity of the neighbor. And so we're called to that as, uh, as Jesus was, who reached out. He didn't see the upper classes as his ministry focus as much as it was the one who was alongside the road. So then what did our early global mission work end up looking like? Um, like, you know, where were we? What were we doing? And what was our purpose? Yeah, that's very interesting. I think we need to know from the beginning, it was organic. It was through a network of relationships. Uh, we didn't have a secretary, which was what their names were in those days, secretary of world mission until 1933. That was when there was a kind of an organized strategy for how we entered into mission. But we were as annual meetings gathered together, as executive committees of the covenant gathered together, they thought about, we have to find a place, a way in which we go in mission. And again, this was deeply influenced by the Swedish covenant, uh, the relationships they had. Uh, and you know, even before the formal formation of the covenant in Sweden in 1881, they started sending missionaries to Russia. Uh, A.E. Carlson, Adolf Lydell uh, were sent to Russia, but the doors were closed. And so President Ekman at that time, um, through the influence of an explorer and, and other leaders, uh, decided to send these two uh, missionaries to America to go to Alaska. And that was uh, the beginning. And so there, 
the, the, the Swedish governor wanted to go to Alaska. And so Alaska for us at that time, 1886, that, that was a foreign country. Uh, you know, in, in 1867, the United States bought Alaska from Russia for $7 million. But it was neglected uh, from 1867 till 1886 when there started to be some interests in education and commerce and the introduction of reindeer uh, to, to Alaska. And so it, it became a, a, a foreign field, a foreign region. Uh, it, it, it was a place for mission. And um, so Carlson and Lydell arrived in America and went to a covenant annual meeting. And they told about their plans for Alaska and the meeting said, hey, this is where we can go and let, let's go to Alaska. And so they, um, they actually contacted uh, the Covenant of Sweden and asked if um, Carlson could be transferred to the Covenant of America and work in Alaska. And uh, they, they, we'd like to send uh, money to Lydell as he works in Alaska. Well, the response from the Mother Church was yes, on the condition that you take full responsibility for Alaska. You fund it and you take care of it and uh, we will pray for you. And so it began and that's how Alaska started. Um, in the first uh, decade, there were 13 missionaries who went to Alaska. Now there was in 1893 to 1897, there was a deep depression uh, in the world. And it impacted the work and the resources for the work in Alaska. In 1899, there was a discovery of gold. And to say the least, it distracted the missionaries. And, and there's long stories related to that. But over the, the following decade from 1906 to 1915, 36 missionaries served in, in Alaska education, medical work, reindeer farms, evangelism, discipleship, church planting. It was, a, it was a holistic approach. And that was the beginning of our mission was through that network of relationship with Sweden and through the opportunity for this country that was close to us that we could access easily at that time. So that was Alaska. The other area that we entered into mission was China. Uh, and I think that again, the context of the world at that time and, and our world as a covenant in the in United States was, it was a strong influence by Hudson Taylor who had formed, who formed eventually the China Inland Mission. And he was from uh, England and another uh, Eric Folk from Sweden, uh, who was deeply influenced by Taylor and Friedrich Franzen. These were strong influences in the evangelical world at that time. And their call to mission was heard by hundreds of people. Um, and so in 1889, uh, an ad hoc committee of foreign missions in the covenant recommended to the annual meeting that a missionary be sent with Eric Falk to China. 
And so that began uh, a, a search, who will go for us? If we're gonna send missionaries to China, who's gonna, who's gonna go? Well, there was a seminary graduate from the Covenant School uh, who felt called to China. In fact, there's a story about him praying in his family's farm next to a haystack. And he, after prolonged prayer, uh, he made this commitment. Lord, I, I know that you have called me to be a missionary and I will either go to China or I will give half of all my income to missionary effort in China. At 23 years old, he left for China as our first missionary to China. Uh, he went along with Carl uh, Wallen, and as it was stated often in the history books, Mrs. Wallen, not usually with a name, <laughs> just Mrs. Wallen. <laughs> so that changed over time. Um, but there was a vision for missionary work that was based on, and here's a key, on established stations and solid instruction. You see, much of the work of Franson and uh, Hudson Taylor was a kind of itinerant proclamation evangelism. We're gonna go to a village, we're gonna proclaim the gospel, we're gonna go on to another village, proclaim the gospel. We have reached the ends of the earth with the gospel. And many came to faith. I don't, I don't discount that. But there wasn't the kind of heart connection that uh, Peter Madsen uh, believed was central. And so Carl Olson in his book, uh, By One Spirit, says this. He says of Peter Madsen, he wanted a mission through which, which through evangelism, education, and benevolence, slowly spread the gospel and the savor of Christ throughout the entire culture. It was a doctrine of leaven rather than the bugle blast. And for this purpose, the mission needed quiet, able, and courageous people to be patient and diligent to master the language, to understand the culture and the gestalt of the Chinese. This was very significant. The way in which he went about mission was to seek to be alongside, to be appreciating, understanding culture, not just bugle blasting it out, as, as Carl Ozen says, but rather coming near to people to understand the setting, provide an established center for mission out of which work could continue and have a, a future. So that was the beginning. And it was in, uh, Interesting to note, the region was the Hubei region, which the largest city of Hubei, uh, where we worked, was Wuhan. The early years of this work in China was, was greatly underfunded and had competing interests with France and, and Hudson Taylor. So a lot of covenant members and covenant churches were supporting these other missions and not the work of Peter Madsen. And he went through some deep suffering and, and, and struggles during those years. Uh, but eventually uh, that turned around and support began. And so over a period of 1906 to 1935, over 60 missionaries were sent from the covenant to serve in schools and seminary and church planting, nurses training, preparing Chinese evangelists, 
Um, but by 1945, only four remained uh, in the midst of the Sino-Japanese War and uh, in the beginnings of the Communist Revolution. It was in 1948 when, um, when Esther Nordland, Martha Anderson, and Alec Berg were murdered by bandits on their way to a missionary council meeting. And those martyrs uh, have been remembered by the covenant and an inspiration for mission going forward. But that also marked the end of our presence in China at that time. 1948, all missionaries evacuated. Um, there had, um, there had been 95 missionaries serving in China. I think that's a significant thing to remember. There were 95 who served up till 1948 as missionaries from the covenant in China. After the evacuations of all the missionaries in China, then eventually work began in Hong Kong and in Taiwan, Formosa it was called at that time, and uh, in Japan. So the, the remaining work we have done is in Taiwan and Japan, and it continues to be an important area of our prayers and our support. As you know, Congo then happened. These were both China and Alaska were, were 1890s, whereas then it was jumped to 1937 was our next mission and I won't say too much about it because it's known more and that is in Congo uh, but um, Titus Johnson of the Free Church had done a exploration of Congo found an area to work the Swedish Covenant had gone to Congo so it seemed like the place to go and interestingly at an annual meeting when Peter Madsen was I don't know in his 60s and had you know left China he came to the annual meeting there and there was talk about, should we send a missionary to Congo? He stood up in the meeting and impassionately called for us to send missionaries to Congo. And that was an influence by one who had been uh, such a key part of the work we'd done in China. And um, the other mission in, China, in, in Congo was the Evangelical Free Church. And so they had been working in the Ubangi region, the Northwest Congo. Uh, the, and, and so this kind of coupled with our interest in Congo, let's, let's work alongside in, in that same area. There was a, what they called a comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y arrangement in, in Congo, where denominations didn't all compete for the same area, but they were kind of defined in different areas. So the Free Church and Covenant really were in the Ubangi region. And the, and the Free Church at that time was, was quite, a bit, quite small as a denomination, and their resources were very limited, at least that's the reports. And so they said, the Covenant, why don't you work and, and, and we'll give you the station Karawa, and we will work in Tandale, and you know, and, and, and other regions. So side by side, the covenant and the free church worked, but we kind of took it from Gemina West to Karawa and then into the rest of, of the Obangi region. 
and um, Gust, S., Gust E. Johnson was then the first secretary of mission in the covenant. And he's the one that uh, helped to push us to that work. And Wally um, and Sarah Thornbloom uh, were the first missionaries who were sent doctor to serve in 1937. And so over the years, hospitals, schools, agriculture projects, seminary, Bible schools, evangelism, church planting has, has taken place. And now the CEUM, our partner, uh, we are under them in their leadership of the work. And we come alongside in areas where we can be appropriate and mentor. And they identify that over a million people um, are part of the CUM churches today. And so we give thanks to God for his, um, his providence in guiding us there and giving us the, the ability and the, the work of the spirit to see um, transformation happen in a, in a very difficult region. Um, it was in 1964 then, and Paul Carlson uh, was um, martyred. And uh, that became another inspiration for missionaries going to China, I mean, to Congo. Uh, in fact, some of those who are retiring now, they were inspired by uh, the work of Paul Carlson, even though it was 12 months on the ground. Great. You just used some language um, about partnership and we're serving with um, the CEUM, right? We don't evangelize to them. We serve with them. And I've noticed uh, sometimes when people come into covenant offices or join our team, and one of the biggest cultural shifts for people that aren't covenant is understanding how we talk about how we serve and partner with the global church to um, do mission together. But can you talk a little bit about what makes the covenants understanding an approach to mission unique? Like what makes us how are we different or how do we identify ourselves as we um, kind of engage in this work? Yeah, just back to that language, it would be inappropriate for us to say our church in Congo, our church in Japan, they're not ours. We don't own them, but that's the, that's the big shift mm -hmm. is we don't own the work around the world. I mean, it's God's work, but it's the indigenous national leaders and denomination that that is is the they they are the owners, and we are partners to come alongside in ways that they believe is helpful and appropriate. Now, um, some of the ways that may set us apart from other churches and ministries, I, I I can't exactly say, but I can say what we are about. And that would be, we are very careful about the training of missionaries, or we call them today global personnel, because missionary and mission even has a connotation that can be domination. And we want to remove ourselves from that. But the training of global personnel, the credentialing, the member care, pension, insurance, intercultural competence testing, all those are part of what we do to be sure that we have a person who is suitable uh, and uh, able to uh, serve in an appropriate way in, in a context. 
we believe that our ministry is about the whole person, the holistic gospel for the whole person. Uh, we see ourselves certainly involved in evangelism and discipleship and the whole life of the person that's in need. And so education has been important. Agriculture development's important. Clean water is important. You know, a variety of uh, ways in which the whole person is represented. That's part of our mission. And it is central to uh, much of the work that we do around the world. We work in partnerships. So it, it's again, in contrast to ownerships, there are different mission agencies that go to a region of the world and they do their work, but they don't really have any relationship with any existing denomination or organization that it has a national identity. Um, that's their calling, but we believe it is most appropriate to work in partnership where there's um, at least uh, a subordinate role that we have, if not a uh, equal role in discerning God's call in, in that area and that place. And so we want to serve in that way. One of the other ways we distinguish ourselves, I suppose, is that we commission and consecrate women as well as men, not just the wives of men to come alongside, uh, you know, for many, many years. Um, we had the men who were called to be missionaries got pensions, but the women did not. We included them uh, in, in the man's pension. Well, now they both get pensions. They both are consecrated, but they both go through training and equipping as well. We are also strongly moving toward diversity in our leadership, away from the dominant white male leader to a multi-ethnic mission movement. Um, that's a key part of our future, and we want to keep that central. And that may distinguish us from some other missions and their priorities as well. We don't have a strategy for the world. And let me just explain. We believe that strategy and vision emerges in the local context. So when we send a missionary to be alongside a partner, it is not to impose our strategy for the world on that place, but rather to be alongside, to be listening, and to discern God's call in that setting for that mission. And we, from covenant office, then would be supporting and encouraging what emerges in those local contexts. Those are some of the things that perhaps distinguish us uh, and our efforts to move away from a more paternal teacher, authority, owner to a uh, subordinate role alongside what has become maturing churches and work that go goes on. I mean, let, let's celebrate. The gospel has gone to much of the world, and the places that we go are alongside that work to continue it and encourage it, to provide mentoring and training in areas that we are invited into, and uh, to encourage 
uh, the support of mission uh, in areas where they're under-resourced to be able to carry it out. I don't want to shame our forebear missionaries, but there is an appropriate critique. And I mean, even Peter Matson, you know, he dressed Chinese, he learned the language, he incorporated everything, but there's a sign outside his house that said, bringing the best of the West to the East. In that statement, there may have been a hidden critique of the West, but it was still <laughs> embedded in each of us is this superior bias. Yeah. And I, I, I do believe, because I've known many missionaries. I mean, I grew up, my home and my home church, the only way I knew the covenant through hearing missionaries. You know, I, that's as a child, as a, as a young person, I didn't know about the covenant, but I knew about covenant missionaries and Ann Berg in, in Congo and Bob Vermeer in Japan, you know, Rachel in Taiwan, you know, um, the reeds, I, I learned about them and they had a heart of sacrifice and service. They wanted to give of themselves. They didn't want to bring America to those countries and make people into Americans. Um, but there was a deep desire that people come to faith. And unfortunately, a lot of it started looking like we're going to Christianize the country, which meant equally to Westernize the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there was, when, when the, in, in Congo, they talk about when the missionaries had to evacuate, the Congo Covenant Church could start to dance and worship. Really? And that's, that's when the church grew. Wow. When they could go back to their cultural music and dance in wow. worship, people came and were attracted and, and, and came to new life. Well, wow. you know, early missionaries, you wore a suit for if you're going to preach, if you're going to go to church. <laughs> And you don't dance. Wow. <laughs> um, that's just a interesting little side bit. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that's awesome. I but that. I, I love the work that missionaries have done. Global personnel from the earliest days, mm -hmm. they felt the call of God. Mm -hmm. And they responded with faith and sacrifice and those who went to Congo first on the ocean liners packed their clothes in their coffin. And the coffin went with them on the ocean liner because they know that knew that they were going and may never come back. Oh my gosh. That's a kind of mission that we don't know today. Wow. So I cannot, um, I cannot shame our forebears yeah. uh, for giving their lives. I'm wondering if you may have like a word or like an exhortation to like essentially the people in the pews, like for those in the covenant who are not called to be missionaries, how can they be engaged or, or you know, like why be engaged in global mission I would encourage people to be in mission 
because we are called as followers of Jesus to live in two worlds. And I, I say that by explaining it this way. I have my world right here. I have my family here. I have my kids, my grandkids, the church community. That's a world that I pay attention to. I have eyes for. I make contributions towards. I volunteer for. Engage in that. But God calls us to even more. And it's part of that great commission and great commandment that we're given. And we are to have another world that is important to us in the name of Jesus. And, and so find another world in which you become well averse in what's going, what God is doing in that world. It, it could be Congo, it could be Japan, it could be Thailand, it could be Colombia. We have 30 different countries in which we work. Find out about that world. Learn from the national leaders in that world and the global personnel in that world what God is doing. Celebrate it, pray for it, and be alongside as a support. There's financial support. For the sake of equity, uh, not in a in in a in some kind of a socialist way. It, it is about we have so much, and so little that we might give can make so much difference in another place. So I have eyes on another world. I live in two worlds. I live in many two worlds, and when I look at the different countries in which we've been, but I've been with the babies who've been dying of malnutrition in Congo. And I've been alongside my own grandson who died of a heart ailment. And I had both of those worlds in my heart. And that enriches me and it gives me closeness to the heart of God, which we can do something for people who live in conditions, some with great resources, but a poverty of mind and spirit, and some with a poverty of, of resource in their lives, we can come alongside and we can love in the name of Jesus, not to own it, not to take glory in it, but to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth, caring for the neighbor in Jerusalem and the neighbor around the world. And God will bless you and bless his work in this world. friends for listening to this episode of the Love the Cup podcast. And if you'd like to share your story of when you became covenant, send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye.